Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. All right, we're going to look at the subject of true grace. Everyone say true grace. True grace. And I want to start by looking at the book of Psalm, Psalm verse 14. And if you have your Bible, please turn to that. If not, look up on the screen. Psalm 14. The author of Psalm 14 is David. David was that little shepherd boy that uh, looked after his father's sheep. He um, wrestled a bear and he wrestled a lion because his sheep were under attack. He loved his father so much and he loved his sheep so much that he actually prepared to put himself in harm's way to defend his father's honour and look after what belonged to his father. He's the young boy at the age of about 17 that took on that gigantor of a man called Goliath. And uh, he's that man who was a musician. He was a, he was a psalmist. He went on to become king of Israel. This is the David that I refer to who wrote this particular book. Psalm 14 and verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will evildoers ever learn? Those who devour my people as men eat bread and who do not call on the Lord. There they are, overwhelmed with dread, for the Lord is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Israel, uh, Zion. Sorry, When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. David paints a disappointing and bleak and poor picture of humanity. He says that there is no one. He says that there is none. He says all have turned away. And he goes on to say that there is not even one person on the face of the planet that does good. Now, I don't know about you, as I read that, I think, boy, these are strong words. I'm sure you'd agree. In actual fact, they're so strong, it's really easy to read over, overlook and dismiss these words and write them off as David is just having a bad day. Um, Well, let's be honest, I don't think David is having a good day. But just to dismiss it as David is having a bad day, I believe we would be poorer for that conclusion. Before we write these words off, I want to throw a thought your way. Would it be fair to say that sometimes we are quicker to judge than we are to comfort? Kath and I, on our day off more recently, went into town. We thought we'd do a little bit of shopping and get a little bit of a bite to eat. And there we were walking down the Rundle Mall and I saw this homeless person. He had a little cup in front of him, obviously expecting some money to come his way. He was a beggar. 
And I've got to be honest with you, and please don't look down at your nose at me. I'm just being honest. My first thought was not to give him money. My first thought was, I wonder what he did to get himself in that position. Maybe you have thought the same thoughts when you've seen people in that particular situation. I thought to myself, boy, what did he do? See, criticism comes quicker than compassion. Hard-heartedness comes more naturally to us than we'd like to admit. Let me just throw a few illustrations your way. How many of you have ever found yourself yelling at your kids for doing something that you used to do at their age? How many of you have ever been out on a restaurant, maybe just the two of you, a husband and wife, wanting a romantic, quiet evening, and next to you is a table with a family on it? And the kids are unruly, making lots of noise, running around. And you cast a judgmental eye upon the parents like, get your kids under control. Has anybody ever been guilty of that? See, I believe that this is what David is referring to. The truth is, church, The thing that stands out to me about David's writings and my life and what I've seen in the lives of others, having been involved in ministry for many, many years, is this. We're all as bad as each other. And the reason we're all as bad as each other is because we all have the same problem. We all have the same condition. And that condition, the Bible calls sin. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, All have sinned and fallen short of God's holy standard. In other words, you and I were born with a sinful nature. See, the problem for us is not a nurture problem. It's not because of our mum and our dad. It's not a nurture problem. It's a nature problem. Every one of us was born with a sinful nature. And that's why we are drawn to the wet paint by nature. You see a wet paint sign, and and let's be honest, we we just find we are drawn like a moth to a lamp. We are drawn to find out if indeed that particular item is wet. And if it is wet, how wet is it? And if it's not wet, why haven't they got rid of the sign? Why are they misleading me? Come on, it can't just be me, can it? And then we are drawn to this wet paint sign. Likewise, we are drawn to criticism. We we, we weren't taught how to criticise. We are just drawn to it by nature. We are drawn to these things by nature. It's not a nurture problem. It's a nature problem. We are drawn to anger. You didn't have to be taught how to be angry. Now, I need you to be angrier. Come on, I need you to be angry. We are just drawn to those things by nature. Our problem is not a nurture problem. It's a nature problem because we are all born into this thing called sin. We're all as bad as each other because we all have the same problem. We all have the same condition and the Bible names it as sin. (sighs) Now, before you want to slit your wrists, Some of you are looking for anything sharp right now. Just kill me now. No. The good news is David goes on to say in verses five to seven, he says that God is present. He goes on to say that it is God who protects and God who restores. 
all of which none of us deserve. And we only receive by God's grace, His unmerited, undeserved favour. The Bible says that we are all saved by grace. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by not touching that wet paint. We're not saved by not getting involved in gossip. We're not saved by anything that we do in our own strength. All of us have the same problem. All of us have deserved the same consequence, but by God's grace, He made a way for us to be saved. We did nothing to deserve redemption. We did nothing to deserve forgiveness. We did nothing to deserve salvation. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, it says, but because of His great love for us, that's where it started. While we were still sinners, doing our own thing, God was in the background loving on us. The one who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions, for it is by grace. Everyone say grace. It is by grace that you've been saved. Every one of us in this room, it's by grace, by grace, by grace. There go I, but for the grace of God. Every one of us has been saved by the grace of God. This being true, I desire that Victory Church would be a grace-based church for each and every one of us to minister from a place of grace. And in order for us to minister from a place of grace, we must first understand what true grace is. Not the watered-down, man-made version of grace. As we've learned more recently, in our series, Straight Out of Context, when it comes to understanding the Bible, we need to know its context. That is, who wrote the Scriptures? To whom were the Scriptures written to? What was God's plan and purpose? What is the big theme? What is the big picture? To any particular verse that we read. We need to understand the context first and foremost. Secondly, we need to interpret Scripture with Scripture. We need to interpret Scriptures with Scripture. The Bible interprets itself better than any other book. And thirdly, we need to apply that which we've learned. This is not an opportunity for us just to get knowledge. In actual fact, Paul commended the Bereans in Acts chapter uh, 17 because they were of noble character. They weren't like the Athenians, he goes on to say, who gathered together, talked about the latest and greatest ideas, but did nothing with it. God intends for us to apply that which we learn week after week, day after day, month after month, and year after year. And so with that being said, I want to look at a few scriptures from different parts of the Bible to get an understanding of what true grace is. The first thing I want to look at is this. Number one, true grace starts with humility. In James chapter 4 and verse 10, it says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. Now, every one of us wants God to lift us up. If I went around and did a survey, who wants God to lift you up? We'd all put our hands up and say, yeah, I I want that. And, And God is into lifting us up. In actual fact, God loves us so much, He'll even help us in this area of humbling ourselves. How, I hear you ask? Well, He puts us in situations where our weaknesses, our foolishness, and our immaturity are exposed. Isn't that a loving God? 
In order for us to humble ourselves, He puts us in situations where our weaknesses, our weaknesses, our foolishness, our immaturity are exposed. What do I mean? Think heavy traffic. See, it's easy to be a Christian when you're asleep. I don't know that I, I don't know that I do anything wrong when I'm asleep. I just, you know, just perfect Christian when I'm asleep. But put the same person in heavy traffic. And whatever is on the inside of you is going to come out in heavy traffic. And I've got to be honest with you, and I hope you don't think less of me when I say this. I find heavy traffic one of those moments that really does bring the worst out of me. I find myself saying things I'm not proud of. I find myself speaking to people that can't even hear me. I wish my kids will remind me, say, Dad, they can't hear you. We can. And at that moment, I've got to be honest, I'm not being the world's best parent. I'm certainly not being the world's best Christian. And God has given me an opportunity for me to humble myself in order that He might lift me up. The purpose is God wants to lift us up. God wants to help us. God wants His grace to be evident in our lives. And so He places us in moments like heavy traffic. Not that we condemn ourselves, not that we condone our actions, but that we would cry out for mercy in those moments. Maybe you're one of those People who say, I'm, I'm not like you, Tony. In traffic, I'm just very calm. I just drive along and, and I obey the speed rules. And to you, I want to say, you're probably the person that causes all of our frustration. <laughs> but maybe traffic's not your thing. But maybe it's sickness. Maybe you've had one of those horrible years of sickness and, and that's brought the worst out of you. Maybe it's just tragedy. God will allow things to happen to us. I'm not saying He'll bring them on, but He will allow things to happen to us in order to show us where we're at, in order to show us the immature, foolish areas of our life that require His grace. See, sin manifests in many different ways. It can manifest in fear. It can manifest in pride. It can manifest in frustration. It can manifest in anger, etc., etc. I can honestly tell you that through the kind of year that I've had, from January right through to now, it's just been one of those years for me personally, for our family, and indeed for this church. And you've heard me say many times before, but... This year has been a humbling year in many ways. And to be honest, I feel as a result, I'm a better person. I feel God's graced me through this season. And I feel more humble. I feel more compassionate. I feel more empathetic, particularly to those who find themselves in hospital and find themselves in hospital for a long period of time. I feel that I'm far more empathetic toward those ones. And to that I say, thanks be to God for His grace leading me through this, making me a better person. But I also know some might be here listening to what I'm saying and say, yes, Tony, I'm glad that happened to you because you actually did need to be more humble. 
And you did need to be more empathetic. And you did need to extend more grace. And to that person, I would say this. You are right. But what they would be failing to see is that at that moment, they are full of pride. And pride is equally as bad as anything in my life that I needed to change. True grace starts with humility. It starts with getting the log out of our own eye before we pick the speck out of somebody else's eye. All these things, fear, pride, anger, etc., they are all the secondary causes. They are the fruit of the issue. But the primary cause that we need to focus on is indeed the grace of God. It's only the grace of God that can deal with our problems. We need more grace, not more people on our side. I believe if we spent more time enlisting more of the grace of God than enlisting more listeners to our cause, listeners to our bitterness, listeners to our pain, listeners to our hurt, we spend more time doing that than actually getting what can actually help us, and that is the grace of God. The grace of God is the result of us humbling ourselves. And the result means that we can live in authenticity and not hypocrisy. See, when you ask somebody to do something that you're not doing yourself, that's hypocrisy. But when you're asking somebody to do something that you are living in, that's authenticity. Now, I'm not preaching perfectionism. I'm preaching grace. I'm preaching we have a, a desire to live a certain way and, and if we fall short of that desire, we call, about, call upon His grace through humility and that's what I'm asking us as individuals and as a church to do and to live in. Amen? So the first thing about true grace is it starts with humility. The second thing is that grace, true grace, brings hope. It's humbling to admit when we are struggling. But the good news, however, is that when we do admit our struggles, it brings hope to others. And that we find ourselves more sensitive and patient with others who are struggling. Paul says in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 6, he says, If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. And so Paul is basically saying, if we are doing well, that's for your comfort. But if we're suffering, we're going to tell our stories to help you and encourage you and give you hope for your comfort. And so whether I'm doing well or I'm struggling, I want to use my life to bring hope to you. And one thing I've loved about the season that I've been living in, it's given me an opportunity to offer hope even in my discomfort. For many years, my testimony was that the Rainbow household was blessed with good health and I thank God for that. And out of my comfort, I hope I offered comfort to you. That just as we are living in good health, I pray that you would live in good health. We've been blessed as a family with good health. I trust as a church family, we'd be blessed with good health. Comfort to you. But you know what? In this year, I got struck down with sickness such as I've never known or experienced before. And in my discomfort... I've not tried not to weigh you down with that. I've tried to give you hope and say that, hey, in my discomfort, there's still hope. See, true grace 
always brings hope. It won't give up on God or give up on the church or give up on people or give up on leadership just because things aren't going well. True grace can bring the comfort when it's being comforted and when it's being discomforted, it brings comfort. That's what true grace does. And I just want to encourage you that we all have a story. And so tell your story. Tell the story of your struggles. It will bring hope to people. I remember many years ago telling my story of a black day on Bondi Beach. I don't have time to go into all the details about that, but many of you have heard it many times over. In actual fact, I think I bring it up every third week. And it was just one of those dark days for me. I just lost my call. I lost my chewy. I got really, really mad. And it was actually over nothing. But for me, it was very big. It was very real. And I was just carrying on like a pork chop on Bondi Beach. The thing I'm very grateful for is that uh, Bondi Rescue were not there videoing the day because <laughs> I could just imagine the guy in the tower saying we have a problem, some guy up there is kicking some sand in somebody's eye and wielding an uh, umbrella, we better bring him in right now because that's what I was doing, it was just crazy and all I remember saying is I can't believe it, I can't believe it, I can't believe it and I've told that story to you many times I've told that story many times in many different parts of the world and every time I've shared it, guess what? I'm not met with disapproval. I'm not met, for the most part, with condemnation. I bring hope because most people can identify with losing their call. Maybe not on Bondi Beach. Maybe not with an umbrella in your hand. In actual fact, I would say, if you are going to lose your temper, don't have an umbrella in your hand. But I know that story of my struggle has brought hope, because true grace always does. I know my uh, season of sickness and being open and vulnerable with you as a church has brought hope, because I can't promise that you'll never get sick. I can't promise that you won't have a bad day, but we can model how to manage those bad days. And I was very honest about two days in particular when I was in hospital and they were dark, dark days and I didn't have energy and I didn't have strength to pray. I didn't have strength to read my Bible. Does that make me a less of a Christian? No. I just did not have the strength. I could only have enough strength just to breathe in those moments. But I tell you what, the story of those four men that carried their paralyzed friend on a stretcher and they brought him to Jesus and Jesus commended the faith, not of the man on the mat, but the friends who bought him means a lot more to me because I really do believe at that moment it wasn't my faith that kept me going. It was the faith of my family. It was the faith of my friends. It was the faith of the community of believers right across the world praying for me at that time. And so anywhere someone says to me, we've been praying for you, I just remind them, I said, I know you have. And I want to say thank you because there was a moment in my life when I don't believe I'd be alive today if it wasn't for the prayers of the saints. Our story is powerful. Our story can bring hope. The trouble is with Instagram, it's just our snapshots and highlights of all the good things. And it's not a true reflection of our lives. And it doesn't bring hope. It normally brings sadness. Oh, they're off on another holiday. Oh, look at them. They're doing okay. They've got new shoes. They've got a new shirt. Look at their beautiful family. And it can actually bring condemnation. But if we get the opportunity to tell our story of our struggles, which True Grace does because it's humbled itself and we want to use our situation, we want to use our example as an illustration to help others, guess what, church? It brings hope. True Grace always 
brings hope. Our grace is not just for us, it's also for others. To make this invisible God visible again. Amen? Fantastic. Next one. True grace has standards. See, grace is not a license to sin. Jesus taught on the Sermon of the, uh, the, uh, the, Sermon of the Mount, he taught a higher standard. He said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus responds with, I tell you, Jesus often did that. You've heard it said, but I tell you something different. I tell you to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. In other words, church, grace has a higher standard than the law. You and I must not be guilty of confusing forgiveness with the requirements of our faith. See, our profession, the profession of our faith, our profession has standards, which is true for any profession. If you take a doctor that's practicing medicine, and he does the wrong thing and breaks some of the standards according to the profession that he's in, he will be penalised and he will have to live under the consequence of that action. And we see that on the news. Certain um, doctors doing certain things to people when they're unconscious, etc. And they have to be, uh, there has to be a consequence because their profession has a standard. And our faith has a standard. It's not just a matter of anything goes. In actual fact, I chose a profession of the highest standard. There's not another job on the planet that is as scrutinized as someone who's leading a church. Because not only do you have to perform in order to keep your job, but you have to do it in such a way that certain virtues are upheld. In many other jobs, you can be addicted to all sorts of things. You can be divorced and remarried and going through all that sort of stuff. And it doesn't matter as long as you're performing. But in church life, you have to perform and have all those other ducks in a row as well. There is a no higher standard than working for the church. Is it little wonder sometimes we hear certain people um, not matching up to those standards? And can I just say, we need to extend grace Because we're not saying that we are perfect people. We're just saying we are people that by God's grace have chosen to live in the highest standard imaginable. We know we can't do it in our own strength. And so we cry out for the grace of God. And sometimes moments get the better of us. And I think if the church understood that, or if the, uh, the, the body of Christ understood that, we would respond better to those who do fail and fall. It's easy not to have a mishap. It's easy not to fall when there's no standards. You know, in the world, they take a job. It's like shooting an arrow into the air, letting it land wherever it wants, and you paint the target around it. You hit the target every time. But Christians say, no, here's the target, and we're going to try our best under God, through his grace, to try and hit that target. But the world just moves the, the target, just hits the floor. It's, oh, yeah, I got the, that's what I was aiming for. We don't have that luxury As a church, by God's grace, we must live according to that standard. The confusion often comes when we are challenged to live by that standard. And it's that moment we we confuse it being a grace issue versus a standard issue. A forgiveness issue with it being a standard issue. Titus in chapter 2 says, 
For the, by, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly life in this present age. That's what grace will do. It will empower us to say no to ungodliness, to say no to the worldly passions, but to live a godly life. This is true grace. This is not greasy grace. This is not a grace you can do whatever you want to do. This is not the grace that's being preached out there that it's a license to sin. This is a grace that has standards and it's the grace that is able, enables us and empowers us to uphold those standards. God not only asks us to obey him, but he also gives us the grace to obey him. Isn't that amazing? Next point, uh, very similar to this one, but a different angle. True grace and truth work together. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, the one who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, I, I believe that grace is what brings understanding, but truth is what brings direction. In other words, grace can cross over to see things from the other person's point of view. In other words, grace has the ability to have an in-their-shoes approach, not an in-their-face approach. Grace has the opportunity to get into other people's shoes, but then truth addresses the issues and provides answers and then gets them back on track. If we just have grace and we just get in their shoes, we're going to leave them right where they are and where they are is their problem. If we don't have grace with truth, we might just have the in your face. Well, you're stupid. You shouldn't have done that. That's not going to help either. It's grace and truth working together. And so grace will cross over and see it from that person's perspective. But because we see it from that person's perspective doesn't mean we agree with it. But the grace will empower us to help that person move from where they are to where they need to be. Jesus is the best example of this. When that woman was brought to him, the woman that was caught in the act of adultery, the religious people of the day set Jesus up at that moment. This was a setup. But Jesus turned it on its head. And he says, He who is without sin, let them throw the first stone. And it says, oldest to youngest, one at a time they left. See, they knew something of what David was talking about. There's no one good here. We're all as bad as each other. We can't say that we haven't sinned. Until it was just this woman and Jesus. And this is what Jesus said, operating in grace. He says, your sins are forgiven. See, grace always crosses over to the other person. That's what Jesus did when he left heaven to come to earth. There was a crossing over. But Jesus didn't come to set up residence on planet earth. He went back to heaven to bring people with him back to heaven. Because he's the way, the truth, and the life. And it was the truth that leads people to heaven. It wasn't just about Jesus coming. It wasn't Jesus about Jesus just crossing over to this woman saying, your sins are forgiven. But then he brings a challenge. Now, go sin no more. That's truth. It's truth and grace working hand in hand. A more recent illustration of this is a conversation I overheard one of our kids having with their friends. And uh, the conversation was in and around about something that was going on. And one of my kids' friends said this. They said, yeah, but I don't have parents like you. I, I don't have a dad like you. 
And I love the response because at that moment, that is true. And when you've had good upbringing or when you've had a good lifestyle, at that moment, grace will cross over that. Wow, what would my life be without that? That's what grace does. It crosses over and says, wow, yeah, you're actually right. I, I don't know what it's like not to have a dad. I don't know what it's like not to have a mum. I don't know what it's like not to be able to uh, afford to do some of the things that I've done. That's what grace will do. It'll cross over. So because you don't have a dad, I feel for you. That's what grace will do. But it's because you don't have a dad that truth will speak what dads would have spoken. And so I was so proud of my child on that day because they crossed over, felt the person's pain, but then actually brought truth. And as I listened, I thought, gee, that sounds a lot like me. She was bringing what she never received because she didn't have a dad. That's what grace and truth looks like working together. We cross over because there's many people who don't have a dad. They don't have a mum. They don't have finances. They don't have what we've been wonderfully blessed with. So we cross over. But we don't leave them there. But then we provide what they lack because of what they don't have in their life. Does that make sense? So this is truth and grace working together. And as a band come up, I want to finish with this one thought, that true grace changes our motivation. True grace changes our motivation. In other words, we adopt a position that says, I don't have to, but I want to. Because we're operating out of a relationship with God. When I was much younger and first got involved in the gym, you need to understand, I didn't get involved in the gym because I was made to. I didn't get involved in the gym because I had to. Basically, I got involved in the gym because I had and still do have a great relationship with my dad. And that's what he did. And it was his lifestyle and his example that inspired me and motivated me to want to get to the gym. And so I never had a, I've got to go to the gym mentality. I was motivated by something more than just pushing weights. And that was a relationship that I had with my father. And I believe when we understand true grace, it will change our motivation for why we do what we do. Whenever the offering buckets go by, or as we come up to our heart for the house offering, I don't want us to approach it with a, I suppose we have to give again. That's not true grace operating. That's obligation. But true grace doesn't see what we're parting with. True grace understands what we have already received. And it changes why we do what we do. To have this notion that I have to pay my tithe is so misleading. It's so wrong. And it's so anti-grace. When you get a parking fine, you have to pay your parking fine. But to put paying a parking fine and tithing in the same context is just oh so wrong. The reason we pay a parking fine is because we've broken the law and we have to pay based on a consequence. That's not true for our giving. We don't have to pay because it's a consequence. We get to give. And true grace understands this. True grace knows this. True grace operates from a place of gratitude 
It operates from a place of relationship and understands why we do what we do. As we approach our heart for the house offering, we're not here to twist your arm. We are here to remind you of the good things God has done. We are here to remind you of what we would be without him. We are here to remind you of the impact that God has had through us as a local church. And all of this, with his grace, should motivate us to pray and seek his face as to how we can get involved, what we can do to give. In conclusion, God's answer to our sin is quite simple. It's his grace. But true grace. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, it says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Who wants times of refreshing to come? We all do. Well, the Bible tells us how we can get those times of refreshing, and that's on the other side of repentance. It's on the other side of humility. Why? Because when we humble ourselves and when we repent, the grace of God comes into our life. And it's the grace of God that enables us to be forgiven and to move on from where we are. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au. 